0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the BFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Kurt Squire about his new book, Making Games for Impact. Designing Games for Learning. Case studies show how to incorporate impact goals, build a team, and work with experts to create an effective game. Digital games for learning are now commonplace, used in settings that range from K-12 education to advanced medical training. In this book, Kurt Squire examines, examines the ways that games make an impact on learning, investigating how designers and developers incorporate authentic social impact goals. Build a team and work with experts in order to make games that are effective and marketable. Well, Kurt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the recent global pandemic, I was wondering if you could reflect on how has it affected you and your work, and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from the experience.
0: Oh, what a great question. Um, So uh, I've had a number of takeaways. I mean, on a a personal level, um, I think the most obvious thing is just realizing uh, I have two children and a a wife who I work with, um, who's also a faculty member, and just realizing the amount of emotional care that kind of goes into keeping everything going was kind of the first obvious thing. Um, And I guess as on a related point, just realizing how uh, the inequities that in terms of how it's experienced for me, it was someone with, with some schedule flexibility, um, formal education to help my kids so I can help tutor them, uh, versus someone who may not have access to so much rec- so many resources. Um, that was probably the biggest thing. I-, I wrote an article looking at this a little bit um, and made an argument that we really have um, affluent areas, like the one where I live, where um, a lot of families have a lot of resources, have access to social material and technical infrastructure that enabled us to kind of go along with the pandemic and our kids didn't really skip a beat. Whereas I think there are a lot of kids in the schools that we work with who are um, less privileged who really did struggle.
1: Um, Did you teach during this time?
0: I did, I taught online.
1: How did you find it? Adapting? (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) um, It was, uh, I found it to be kind of painful. I mean, to be honest, you know, I felt like, uh, so I teach a lot of game, I taught game design courses, and I felt like there was a lot of sort of just speaking out into the ether. Um, you know, I something I've noticed about education is that we do have a lot of technologies for real-time co-presence, things like games, that we mostly didn't use, at least in our institution. And from the stories I heard, you know, there weren't many examples of it. So it felt like we really, uh, although we had an opportunity to maybe Throw out some of the content providing models, like you could imagine flipping classrooms and saying, "Let's, uh, you know, assign YouTube videos rather than lecturing, um, and then organize activities and such." But like in my class, like most of them, we we kind of stayed with more of a content delivery model, which was which was kind of too bad, I think.
1: So, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? How did you get started?
0: So, uh, I'm really an educator by training. Um, I got interested in technology and learning, I guess, as a student, as someone who grew up with games and was interested in, um, you know, could you use games like SimCity or Civilization in formal learning environments? Uh, But from there, I became a Montessori teacher, which, you know, the underlying pedagogy is, although many Montessorians are not friendly toward digital technology, the underlying pedagogy kind of makes sense. And it's one that a lot of uh, constructivists or others have have looked toward. Um, So that's kind of how I got started. Um, From there though, I I did a brief stint as a games journalism uh, journalist because I got really interested in what was happening with games culture, uh, what kinds of new technologies, particularly around things like, you know, games like EverQuest and Ultima Online. Um, uh, Just the, the idea that we were seeing in popular culture, the ability to create living societies that have their own cultures and like distinct languages and such. In um, economies was really interesting to me. Um, so that's kind of how I got started. Um, from there, then I um, moved from journalism back more toward education and started designing games for learning. And really about five or 10 years ran a game design shop where we uh, designed games for learning for research purposes. We partnered with textbook publishers. We did a whole variety of activities trying to really understand how do you make games for learning that actually work.
1: And along your way uh, in your career, what roles did your mentors play?
0: Oh, my mentors? Um, oh, there, uh, there were a ton. I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, early on there were uh, teachers, actually, just as students, teachers who, who inspired me to think about what education could or should be. Um, you know, people who are encouraging us to think, um, you know, to, everything from just a challenge to question things, um, challenge authority structures. There was a teacher, um, who I taught with, uh, Janet Kretschmer was her name, who ran an independent school. That was just fantastic. That, um, kind of a small parent supported individualized learning kind of school. And what, got, got, what very of the many things that interested me about that, just the idea that we kind of know how to do p- good progressive pedagogy you know, There are schools all around the world that are already doing this. Um, uh, Henry Jenkins was an important mentor. Uh, Sasha Barra, my advisor, um, in terms of thinking about situated learning theory. I, I, I think um, uh, Jim, James Paul Gee. Um, so I've had a number of mentors. I'm, I do believe very strongly in the importance of mentorship and um, studying with people who kind of give you frameworks to think with, and then from there, you know, as you kind of uh, absorb some of the ways that they think about the world, uh, moving on, and um, you know, having them become a, kind of a part of you.
1: And what would you say to our younger listeners and maybe early career researchers?
0: Um, I would say find people who you are really interested in. Who You know, when you read them, you think, oh, I'd love to have a conversation with this person. I'd like to uh, learn more. Um, and then figure out kind of what communities they're a part of and then what communities that you might be a part of um, and thinking about what roles and, and places you might play in such a place, like whether it be formal school structures or if it's um you know going into a professional career Uh, but i think really paying attention and noticing when you have that reaction that you find someone intriguing or inspiring and then and then um setting things up so you can really go with them and and, and, you know and run with it
1: so your uh, latest book is making games for impact can you tell us how did you come to writing it
0: yeah, Um. well, really, it was kind of came to be during sort of the tail end of running a, a relatively large uh, research center. Um, we were just finishing a project with Norton Textbook Publishing, where I think it was one of the first sort of partnerships like this, where we, uh, an academic research center had built a game for college astronomy classes in partnership with the textbook company that um, was, you know, pretty well, um, you never have the funding you want. It's still like, you know, essentially the price of a mini of an indie game, but, you know, it had enough backing, excuse me, to to do a decent job. Um, and, and we had a publisher lined up. And so it was, you know, the opportunity to, to make a real, you know, we, we published a real sort of game, right. That's used in classes all around the world. And, um, at the tail end of that, I was thinking about, um, you know, what I really learned, how you get there. Um, I just moved out here to California. And so I was thinking like, well, do I want to really rebuild the same infrastructure that we had in Wisconsin? Um, and what did I learn from it? So if there are other people who are trying to do this kind of work, you know, what are the kind of big takeaways? Um, so that was really the, the motivation to kind of step back and for my own self to figure out what I learned, uh, what I learned about running teams, about how you get things done in institutions, how you navigate the bureaucracies of large organizations like, universities or textbook publishers um so the book is kind of uh, my thinking through that and then trying to share lessons you know like a guide for whoever comes next down this path might pick it up and say oh this is you know this is helpful um i, I will avoid some of the mistakes that he made
1: yes it's uh, quite a great manual of concepts for making games which is really appealing
0: yeah Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I think um, what I tried to do was really walk it through at the beginning where you might uh, a very common set of situations where you've got a couple people together who've never made games, maybe like a student group. And what are some of the things you need to be thinking about? Um, Then next, you know, as you think about growing and maybe you've had one or two successes and you want to build like an art team or art pipeline, like how do you start Thinking about layers of management, um, particularly in academics, most of us are not particularly good at management. I don't think um, we don't really receive training in it. Um, I, something I learned a lot from working with game developers who had team, you know, been working on teams of 50, 100 people um, under high pressure situations, and you know, study the discipline of management. So there's a little bit on there, um, you know, a little bit on sort of analytics and how that works. And I think the the, the last part that I um, I've been thinking about more recently actually is just, you know, what does it mean to get work done within institutions like universities where maybe this kind of work isn't always necessarily encouraged or isn't, isn't, it hasn't been done before. And because most people who are building games for impact are still doing so in an environment where they are not working either for a company or in context where this is really well understood. So like if you're making a textbook textbook, uh, well, there's only a few textbook companies and they kind of have a lock on it, but they, it's kind of understood how that process works, who's going to buy it, what the price points are. Um, When it comes to interactive media and and learning technologies, you most of the time are kind of making it up, and especially in games, where you are having to think outside the box a little bit in terms of production and um, um, getting the game made, all the way to distribution and sales. So I try to reflect a little bit on that, and again, try to maybe share lessons for people, even if they decide, well, I don't know if I really want to make a game for learning, but I am interested in another sort of learning technology, or I'm interested in trying to push innovation in my technology and my company, or my group or my institution, maybe I can learn a little bit about that process.
1: Okay, so let's delve into some of the topics that you cover in your book. Awesome. So first, firstly, could you define what are educational games? um well i mean i think uh, i
0: think of educational games so i think of games uh, i don't spend a lot of time worrying about definitions personally um i think you know if they're useful um, then good but i think for me an educational game is um a kind of a goal-based um activity um usually with some degree of fantasy where you're saying okay this is like not the real world or this is uh you're, we're gonna play in a bit of a sandbox here for a moment where you have goals that you find compelling um, sometimes the game presents those goals um, other times it's more of like an interactive toy something like you know SimCity. um and then um in, in the book I, I talk mostly about just for impact you know if you're trying to make a game that's trying to do something in the world that's trying to have an impact on somebody or something um, uh, educational, I think, in terms of is this going to be an experience that pays off for the player in a, um, in a way that's at least somewhat predictable, um, meaning like it's got, you know, there's an, an underlying intention that you as a designer have and player experience kind of matches up for with it. So I have a pretty broad definition. Um, I tend to believe in the family resemblance of definitions, you know, like there are some things that are clearly educational games, other ones that are kind of more boundary cases where it's not as clear Um, and and sometimes those are even the most interesting ones.
1: So what kind of purposes can educational games serve? Um, Really about everything. I mean,
0: there are probably some that are done better than others. In fact, I think um, some of the ones that are really done well are helping people understand systems, so thinking through systems. Um, Those can be like natural systems like uh, watershed ecologies. I've done a lot of work in in, um, watershed ecologies with uh, colleagues back at Wisconsin, um, you know, where you have multiple input variables and then multiple output variable variables and they all sort of affect each other. And then you learn by being in the system. And I think there's, that's a, a thing that games do particularly well at. Um, <clears throat> but they've been used for everything from history and local history, um, journalism. Um, um, you, you really, I, I think there's just about any, medium, we always think about trying to find the game within a content. So if there's a domain or a phenomena um, and you can find a game-like experience within it, then it's probably something that can be represented through games.
1: So as I understand, you can have explanatory games uh, where you can learn literally fact, uh, fact-based fact uh, information, but some of the games can't be skill-developing, can they?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
1: th- something like teaching a surgeon.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. So um, we did develop a suite of simulation games for DeVore Medical um, for teaching their veterinary staff um, about surgery. So you basically just think of having a virtual patient. um, And there are a bunch of like sort of casual entertainment games like that already, where you are doing surgeries. But we developed some that really, um, where the underlying rule set really is um, the biological rule set of, in this case, it was large mammals, so that um, you need to, you know, apply the proper procedures in the proper order, or you'll have to deal with sort of the fallout. Um, So yeah, all the way from skills to concepts, um, you know, most most games are built around verbs and doing things. So I will say one thing games are less good at is probably declarative knowledge. Like if you want someone to just kind of repeat a fact after me, they're going to be generally less efficient at that. Um, But what you can do is for knowledge is something like our virulent game where you're a a virion trying to infect a host cell. You situate the player as the virion attacking the cell and they literally walk through the steps of what a virion does and in doing so, they start to get um, sort of a, they've felt and done the sort of underlying process. And so then they, they can attach a um, technical or um, sort of a, 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 a term from that we might use in science to that phrase. You know, one of the challenges I found when working with kids in advanced biology is that if you try to read a biology textbook, you don't have a rich situated understanding. It's just, you know, long Latin word with a complex verb and another long word that you don't understand. And so students have a really hard time getting their head around it. And a game in that context can be a good introduction that help helps you kind of become situated and understand the context um, for um, studying. So then you go and then read sort of afterwards or you gain more expository, uh, you have expository text provided for you later. And that's a lot of the pedagogies that we end up doing is sort of play a game, have a deep experience and then go and read, or watch a video, or hear a lecture, or do something that's more kind of expository in nature afterwards.
1: Could you give us a couple of examples of your favorite um, successfully developed games?
0: Um, Across everything, or games for learning, or...
1: Yeah, you can pick. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
0: Well, I guess I, you know, I played World of Warcraft off and on for like a decade, so I suppose that has to count at some point. Um, I'm playing a lot of Hearthstone uh, currently, uh, but I think, you know, really the series that got me interested in all of this were various uh, Sid Meier games, um, Civilization, uh, Colonization, which has some issues, some of which are interesting, but it's it's an interesting game. Um, um, Particularly with Civilization, the idea that you can build historical scenarios, have kids play different historical scenarios, and then see, you know, what does this as a historical simulation or depiction, you know, what does it get, what does it miss what do you see from different sort of simulated interpretations at different scales? That to me is super fascinating. Uh, Railroad Tycoon was another Sid Meier game. That's just fantastic. That's really um, quite a fascinating look at the industrial era um, and probably applicable today, actually. Um, so those are some of my favorite ones in terms of educational games. Uh, Filament Games has a game called Reach for the Sun. That's where you're, you're growing a plant that I think is uh, really just great. Revolution 1979. It's a game about, Uh, where you're a journalist in Iran, um, in terms of our own work, I play at the cosmos. I mentioned it's an astronomy game that I, you know, I feel pretty good about. We didn't get everything perfect, but I think it's, you know, I think it's a pretty good sort of test case as far as this is what a educational game kind of can and should be. Um, I can go on and on. Uh, the Deus Ex series was really big to me. Everything that Will Wright ever did. Um, I can go on. (laughs)
1: And something like simulators, for example, space simulation or flight simulators, are also considered educational games?
0: Well, um, they can be, um, you know, um, they can be. Um, so what's interesting about that is that, you know, game developers are really good at faking systems so and making them look and feel kind of real. So um, you saw a lot of this like 10 or 15 years ago when the American military would pay a lot of money for a very, very uh, high, fide- they call them high fidelity simulations, where in like, if you play flight, you know, if you play flight simulator, you'll be able to fly a plane, right? Those are called high fidelity simulations. And what game developers do very smartly is they figure out, well, where are the areas that you have to get everything right? And then kind of where, where can you cheat on things? And, um, you know a lot of the game ones really do end up cutting corners to the point where yes they might be uh, they might be helpful for certain purposes but you really want to make sure that they are like teaching the right things and not accidentally teaching misconceptions as a good example, we made um, a prototype of a simulator thankfully we never sort of pushed it out but it was an emergency responder simulator for firefighters. And um, it was basically what would happen if there was uh, an incident in a public shopping area. And when we set up the simulation, it was mostly working, but um, you kind of learned through the game that the most effective thing was to sort of split up and and try to cover as much ground as possible because you would essentially have the most success that way. Well, the number one rule in their field was, is that you want to always have a buddy. So in case you fall down, someone can kind of get you up, but we had not programmed the underlying rule set so that, um, we really captured that correctly. And, and in that case we said, you know, we really need to, we either need to fix this. So it's honoring the time, you know, time honored wisdom of this field. I guess if we think we want to try to know we could put it out there and say hey maybe you're all doing it wrong but i I don't think they were probably doing it wrong i think we got it wrong um and i think similarly you need to just be aware of uh you know what is the underlying model and simulation that an entertainment game is built on like american truck simulator i was playing which is a fun truck driving simulator and it's not at all realistic um Mm. what they do do and games will get little details right so you as the player feel like oh this is really realistic like maybe the truck simulator like the dashboard looks right and the steering wheel looks right and you see a couple of key icons on the roads like the hollywood sign in california so that looks right but then there's a whole bunch of other stuff that is not at all correct and so you figuring out what you're getting right versus where you're cutting corners is really important and that's to, to a large degree where i think something can be considered educational so it's like educational to whom and for what purpose um most anything can be educational, maybe if it's applied in a certain way. Um, but that then also depends on the activities around it, the scaffolding and all of the other things that go into making a good learning environment.
1: And how do you know whether the game has reached its potential and is successful?
0: It's a great question. Um, it's a lot like the field of kind of psychometrics or um Instructional design generally, where you think about it as just kind of a big research question, like what is the consequences of playing a particular game? Uh, One of the first things that we do are think aloud protocols. So we'll sit someone down and then see what they're doing while playing the game and ask them to think aloud so we can see what they're paying attention to on screen, um, what they're thinking about, uh, what what is going into their decision making now think aloud protocols are not perfect you don't get like a fully perfect screen but it does uh, sorry insight stream of consciousness or insights into the person but it does give you at least a hint of what they're thinking about or you know a clue and so that's what we start with and if we if we're seeing the kind of thinking that we want people to have in the domain like okay this is they're thinking about like you know like the virulent game they're thinking about variants in the cell and they're reading the environment and then from there, uh, so then then we start to think, okay, we we have something that's like an educational game. Um, from there, we then uh, develop a series of instruments that we um, tie to um, that we tie to uh, kind of more traditional sort of tests, um, but they don't have to be. I mean, they can be drawing pictures. Um, we have people illustrate diagrams, make concept maps. Um, you know they'll do some more multiple choice kind of stuff as well and then the last one of the last things that we like to do is actually then start to correlate do, do people who do well in the game also do well on these outside measures so does success in the game look also something like success outside of the cl- outside of the uh, game environment um, and in validity terms like in test making terms you call that um, criterion related evidence for validity, which just means like, does doing well in the game predict how well you do on other things? Um, so you could think about it kind of that way. Like, does, does the content of the game look a lot like it? Oh, we also do expert reviews as well, I should say. So we do have, mm. we work very closely with graduate students and, um, researchers in any of these domains. So they will sign off and say like, "Yep, yeah, I feel good about this game. This is something that I feel like represents either my own practice or my domain or my knowledge or expertise. Um, that's a a key step that we do as well.
1: And that leads uh, to my next question, actually, about the user. So what's the perspective of potential users and what is the reception of uh, educational games?
0: It's a great question. So um, a lot of it depends on how it's presented and in what context. Um, Choice is a really big thing. And we're seeing this across all kinds of different areas. Um, Everything from like mental health and mindfulness kinds of stuff all the way over to education and learning. So if someone chooses to play a game because they want to learn something about something, um, you're going to see some benefits right there as opposed to if it's assigned. So if it's assigned to them, you're going to see, um, you know, people are going to be a little bit less enthusiastic and that's just across all sort of issues. But I think it's particularly important in games where, you know, no two people necessarily like the same game or we, you know, we, we don't always you know, some people might like Solitaire, some people hate it, some people like the Sims, some people hate it. So there's some real issues around that. Um, But having said that, um, if you introduce things as a simulation, there's some evidence that people will be a little more enthusiastic and they are pleasantly surprised if it feels like a game, like, oh, this is actually much more like a game. So you can come in, overselling a game to students in particular. Um, if you're going to present something as a game to like say a bunch of fifth graders, it better be a game-like experience, meaning it better have the right pacing, it better be polished, the controls better work well. So there are many times in which um, I've had colleagues who kind of back off from using the label games and just call it like an interactive simulation um, just because they don't want to get kids that excited. Um, um, but we've mostly approached ours as games. And we've mostly said, hey, we want to be held up to that criteria. Like, is this good? Does this hold up as a good game? Um, from there, um, the kind of the last thing I'll say is that for most of our curricular models, it ends up being sort of play the game first. We, If we're starting a unit like on, say, Lake Science, the first thing we'll do is we have a, a short, like hour-long game where kids role play as a as a youth who uh, lives in a neighborhood and whose dog... Jumped in the lake and is about to get sick, and then kind of time stops and the game freezes. And it says, You know, if your dog uh, jumps in there, they might die because there's a blue algae outbreak. Um, You're going to stop time and figure out what caused it, what can be done about it, and can you clean up the lake? And that's kind of the, the backstory. So they play this game for about an hour where they go, they take samples, they interact with characters, they learn what the causes are, how it can be uh, remedy, what kinds of things you can do. Um, that's kind of like day one and two. Um, from there, they then, uh, and there is actually reading and homework they do in between gameplay sessions, but then the next phase, what they do is they, um, do a case study where they either learn or they explore about another similar kind of lake. Cause not all lakes are the same. So they learn about a different one with a different set of issues. Um, then then that usually lasts like a couple of days. The next phase we do is have them do inquiry-based learning around their own watershed. So like, all right, let's look outside. What's the, what's our watershed? Like, where does our water come from? Where does the water runoff go? And then the last thing that they do is uh, some sort of study or they make something embodying that. So they might make a game level where they take their, their game, um, sorry, their neighborhood, and they represent that as a game. We had a game, Econauts, that was set up to do that. You could build levels. Um, they might just do it in pencil and paper. They might draw maps. Um but that's kind of how we think about it. So rarely do we want to have people just play a game and say that's enough. Usually what we want them to do is practice understandings across a variety of different uh, modalities.
1: This is interesting. So you're saying that you have to think of game as integral part of, uh, of educational activity, for example, but not uh, as a game on its own.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. In most of our activities, I'd say games are like 20% of what they do. um, And then we design activities around it for the other stuff. Now, when games work well, something we're also seeing is they tend to raise interest in a domain. So when you play a game like Virulent, um, and one of my uh, former, actually it's an undergrad, uh, Stefan Slater, who's gone on to graduate school now, Um, did a research study and had some evidence to show that it was most of the effect was actually from raising interest in the domain. So when you just look like on average and you give a bunch of kids a game about being a virus versus reading a book about it, one of the big effects is that they just care. It's like, oh, this is fascinating. Like I'm in this game. I'm a a virus. I'm trying to attack a cell. They get interested and engaged. They want to learn more. So we found that that outside of class, they would read more be showed higher degrees of motivation. So a lot of what games can do is just really set up the context for doing future learning, right? Um, Colleague John Bransford talks about learning as uh, preparation for future learning is the best experiences set us up. So we are ready and interested in going to learn more. And I think that might be ultimately where the sweet spot is for games.
1: And what is the scope of implementation of educational games from which age, for example, can they be used?
0: Oh, they can be used, you know, as long as I would say really all ages, you know, as young as you want to go to as old as you want to go. I mean, there's a lot of work in like early preschool kid app games, you know, like, um, um. Oh, I can't remember the names of them offhand because um, my kids have gotten older. Uh, Monkey Preschool Lunchbox, I think, was my kids' favorite at the, at the time, um, all the way to games to stem off cognitive decline for elderly. Um, I've been reading more about that research literature. So, you know, there's a lot of research literature that playing games can kind of keep you mentally fresh, so to speak, and perhaps stave off things like Alzheimer's. Although the um, more I read the research, my take on it right now is that those games work in so much that they are new and new learning experiences that any new learning experience is really good for you and games can be one of them. So I I think we should avoid thinking that games are this magic silver bullet, but they can be an activity that can, can really uh, help for like say the elderly, particularly if they are played as um, cooperatively or as a part of like a family unit or something like that. So there's a lot of research on everything from Pokemon go, to um, Tetris, which is a weird research on Tetris, all the way over to um, Bejeweled, um, looking at, you know, under what conditions can this help? And under many conditions, it really they really can help with um, the aging process. So you really, you'll see it all, you can see games at every phase.
1: And how easy or difficult is it to start including games in your curriculum? Um, uh,
0: it's, well, it's, um, it, it, it can be very easy. Some of the most compelling examples I've seen are teachers literally saying hey if you if you like games and you've got a game that relates to this topic, I'm open to the idea of you swapping out an assignment As an example, I had um, a fifth grader who built a uh, wrote a proposal to his teacher that for the Revolutionary War era, he wanted to build a modification to the Civilization game. He wanted to build a a Revolutionary War mod. So he he wrote a pitch to his teacher who looked at... I I, I never didn't get a chance to interview the teacher. I should have. But I can imagine teachers saying, why did this kid just come in with, like, you know, two pages of, like, proposal text for me? (laughs) Um, And in that case, you know, you can imagine that just doing the research of trying to figure out, okay, well, you know, let's get out all the maps and where are we going to build it and who are the different – you know, doing a lot of reading and research to build the thing. Um, We've seen similar things in philosophy and humanities classes around, like, the Elder Scrolls series, um, Assassin's Creed series, where people will – analyze games and swap out different writing assignments they already would have done around a game. Um, That's probably the easiest. Um, I would say one of the other uh, things you can do, I have a colleague here, Pat Seed, who's a historian at UC Irvine, who did um, a class on history through games where students would critique and analyze games for their historical accuracy. So that's another kind of, uh, so she built a whole class around it, but you could do assignments around that where you could say, you know, pick a game or, uh, you know, any medium spot, piece of media, if, you, if you're not ready to go full sort of games and, you know, critique it for its historical accuracy, um, you know, keeping in mind that no one book, film, game is inherently going to capture everything that ever happened in history. It's going to, they're always going to have positionality. There's always going to be authorship and so on. So analyze this game or other piece of media for along those, uh, you know, by those criteria. So that's another sort of activity that people can do. Um, The next phase I think is something like I was saying like having people play a game as an introductory activity before a unit. Um, That's another sort of common way. So um, there are ways to get started more slowly, but it can be um, difficult uh, it can be difficult to really integrate it into a curriculum. As an example, you know, I don't, I didn't see many people during uh, COVID. My own kids, you know, were in school during COVID. I didn't see many teachers decide to use this opportunity to, you know, to ask kids to like download a game and install it and play it, even though it's a thing, you know, you could have done. Um, and I won't say easily, but you know, with some work. And I think it's because it really can be kind of scary. As teachers are giving up some control. Um, so, um, so if you're a little hesitant, I understand and I would think about starting maybe small and then bringing it in, um, on the positive side, the teachers I know who do will say that, you know, they get a lot more engagement. Um, some of the behavioral issues with some of the more difficult kids, you know, go away because they're excited to be there and so on.
1: And going back to the development part of educational Mm -hmm. games, where do you want to see games going in the future?
0: Um, the biggest thing I would like to see is the next generation of kids who grew up playing Minecraft, coming up with games that embody the kinds of principles that we see in Minecraft. So the idea that you are building things, you're making things like imagine making electric circuits or um, designing uh, environmental like I would love to see something like designing um, a, a earth science game around climate change where you're trying to design an approach that would help ameliorate the climate crisis Um, um, that are then also collaborative and multiplayer. So I think it's going to come from a next generation. I mean, one reason that I did come to UCI and and I'm teaching now in a full-time game program is I think the next great ideas will come from kids who are game designers who think, oh, I'm going to build a game about that idea. That's an important idea, you know, as opposed to like necessarily teams of academics writing grants and doing all this rigmarole. Um, I think you might get a sort of a leaner startup creative idea that takes off. That's my hope. And that's kind of my I thing. I, that's where I would place my money if I were betting.
1: And now thinking of the bigger bigger picture. So in what way the educational games are shaped by our economic and social forces?
0: Oh, well, that's a big one. Um Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I guess in all the ways, (laughs) Um, one of the biggest ones is that, you know, what gets built uh, and and it's, that is really changing because the independent games movement and the fact that tools like unity have democratized games and game development, sorry. um, And that you have distribution platforms like steam or iOS. So there are, you know, you can find a game now on anything as an example I went down the rabbit hole of looking up bird simulators, like games about birds, and just if you just look, everything from games where you fly to ones where like you're going to be an eagle, and it's trying to like give you a it's like an eagle simulator to collecting games. Some you know, the Cornell's Ornithology Lab is fantastic; they've got a variety of apps. So there are just so many things out there. Um, but having said that, the money tends to follow where the perception is of what people will play and what they will buy. So more games tend to get built that look like the games that exist because people think that's where the market is. Second, I mean, you have the different barriers to entry for really truly democratizing games in the sense that there are certain kinds of kids who feel empowered, who find the role models that we talked about, who are in-game programs, who think, oh, games are for people like me and I should make them. And they tend to skew more heavily male. They tend to be either, um, people who think of themselves as white or Asian. Um, and, and so we are, we don't, because we don't have sort of, uh, the diverse range of developers who represent the diverse range of human experiences, we don't get that same breadth of games. And so one of our goals as well is to really dramatically democratize, um, how that works. And we're, we've got a long, 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 long way to go. But that's something that we're working on here at UCI is how can we help diversify our programs so that the games 5, 10, 20 years from now just look really different because different people are making them.
1: And then what would be the implications of uh, this investment and research into games for our wider society in the future?
0: Um, you know, one one hopeful possibility. So imagine if everyone Uh, Every kid grew up having played, spent some amount of time trying to play a game about any of the major issues facing humanity, like uh, global climate change or financial corruption um, or water shortages or um, threats to democracy. Um, And so that everyone had played them and had a base level understanding. So they kind of understood what was happening and then saw these as relevant issues. And then understood like, in terms of climate science, understood things like um, thresholds or positive feedback loops or you know, longer term implications of, of, um, um, of different variables. So that um, we could have hopefully more literate conversations so that games in that way would occupy a similar space to documentary film. Um, you can imagine maybe a generation doesn't see the um, uh, Al Gore documentary about climate science, which I'm forgetting the name of, but has played a game where they understand, like, hey, you know, that we have many different then theories of that the the population has about what should be done, about how do we get there, you know, or about like a whole generation that has informed opinions about the pros and cons of desalinization plants or something. Um, I think that's kind of the um, the hope is that we have a group of games that really bring ideas, important ideas to the broad public and help, um, improve our fundamental understanding of the world.
1: And what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, making games for impact surprised you the most?
0: Oh, that's, um, (laughs) that's a great question. Um, what surprised me the most? Um, um, I'm having a hard time thinking of anything offhand. Um, uh, I, I, well, I think one thing that maybe surprised me by the end was I went in thinking like, I don't know if I know anything about this topic and <laughs> as weird as it is. And I still kind of feel that way. There's just so much to learn, but you realize that games as an activity are so require so much multidisciplinary, uh, input. So that, you know, what the programmer knows who's building the underlying system, like in our space game to make it. So that's the kind of thing that really surprised me. So like what the the work that the programmer does to make it look realistic uh, and feel realistic as a game, even though you have such radically different scales, you know, trying to get mm. like a planet and the moon on the screen at the same time. And then dealing with like as he did that, he was telling me, well, when you're flying the ship you know, no matter how fast you go or how long the moon's going to look the same size, like for a day, <laughs> like you're not making any appreciable difference. So I need to find a way to stick things in the environment. So you as a player know where you are. Um, and I was like, I had no idea you did that. Or similarly, like our, our person who developed our, our heads up display, like the interface, um, had gotten out a copy, uh, had been watching the movie Iron Man, because apparently when they um, uh, filmed Iron Man, the person who made you know the movie, made the display made a working display so the thing that like um robert downey jr looks at in that movie is a real like you really could use that to to fly the iron man suit around and so he looked at that and said all right well what are the things you need And they started like trying to backwards map what are the different features we would need to put in a real spaceship that can go faster than the speed of light um so everyone has these really interesting roles and does things where i don't really have any idea what they're doing and so One thing maybe to be aware of is like, if you think, well, I can't make a game. No one person really makes a game. Now, there are a few exceptions like Minecraft and others, but those are exceptions that generally prove the rule that it requires a wide range of talent and skills, you know, from musicians to interface designers, to psychologists, to user testers, to artists, to programmers. So if you're interested in this, I guarantee there is a role for you because it requires all kinds of different skill sets and all kinds of different knowledge bases and interests and personality types.
1: And imagine that you could make any kind of ultra realistic educational game. What would that be? Mm,
0: probably, probably something for climate change. I guess um, that would uh, probably like a, a robust simulation that's a lot like Civilization, where you, um, where you walk, where you are dealing with the real Earth and the real constraints, including government, non government actors, and corporations, and you are leading your your implementing something in a realistic way to try to address that issue. I would love to see something like that. Now, you know, it's obviously a complex issue or we would have sort of um, dealt with it, but someplace that lets you play with some of the key leverage points and really see what tends to, what kinds of things can tend to work and then hopefully it'd be multiplayer so that you can have discussions around it. Um, Yeah. And in fact, role playing. So different people are role playing in different situations. So you can see so you can walk away afterwards and debrief and say, oh, you know, if we really want to get, say, various corporations to oil companies to move, I think we need to do X, Y and Z because they won't move until we change these policies. So, yeah, probably something like that, like a, a, a massively real time multiplayer strategy game around climate change.
1: So it's like a uh, model UN where you can fly and shoot lasers or something. <laughs>
0: yes, exactly. No, oh, I
1: would I would play a game like that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Can you tell us what you're currently working on and what will be your next project?
0: Yeah. So um, I am so currently faculty at UC Irvine. Um, I am wrapping up a project um, around uh, mindfulness and meditation and. Um, Breath counting apps for uh, youth. We're basically just about wrap that up. Um, I'm also working on a project um, trying to understand the, uh, doing a uh, kind of a large scale review of uh, the cognitive effects of casual games. So you know, we have all this literature like, oh, games are good for you, but like, are they really and in what context and how do they work? Doing a review on that. Uh, I'm very interested in trying to work with, um, I have a student who's working on technology training tools, including game design for um, kids who really have not had access to tools such as this. So we're working in uh, the Boyle Heights neighborhood of Los Angeles. Uh, He's been running a summer program um, working with Homeboy Industries, which is a nonprofit for formerly uh, youth who've been impacted by the justice system, um, some of whom were in gangs. And so working with them to create technology tools that might involve games, they might not, depending on what they want to do. Um, That's kind of the next project we're trying to get off the ground.
1: Where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Uh, generally, Googling
0: Kurt Squire is probably the best way. Um, GamesLearningSociety.net. We, we're in the process of relaunching, which is our center website. Um, needs a little polish, but yeah, those, those are probably the best ways.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for this uh, stimulating discussion.
0: Thank you, Galina.